listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Arc and Anth podcast, the podcast all about archaeology, anthropology, human evolution, human culture. I am not your usual host. I am Dr. Massimo Lando, and I'm sitting in the studio today with Dr. Michael Rivera. Michael, are you there? I'm here. Hello, Michael. What's up? <laughs> um, a lot is going on at the moment, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm excited to record this. There's uh, specific reasons why we're recording this, but we'll get into that. How, how are you? Ah, I'm doing well. So we, we just had lunch and uh, we are uh, happy to, to start recording after you know, a nice ragu lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're recording today on the 13th of June, 2020. Uh, it's a lovely day in The Hague, uh, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been nearly a year since you started the podcast, hasn't it? It has. Uh, so we are, of course, releasing this as episode 150. So <laughs> it's a lot of episodes when I look back at it. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. But um, I was wondering if your listeners know anything about what happened before episode one? Before episode one? Yes. Well, when I was uh, interviewed by our friend Sarah Louise de Croza, so Dr. de Croza interviewed me for episode 100, I talked a little bit about this. But just in case anybody doesn't really uh, know the origin of this podcast yet and that story, you know, I, I, uh, am, I'm originally from Hong Kong. I moved over to the UK or Europe when I was 18 and I collected a bunch of degrees. And as I was doing that, I did a lot of science communication. I did a lot of outreach and I would be you know, working with schools, with teachers and museums, uh, trying to share what we do in anthropology and archaeology with you know, very diverse audiences, um, especially young people. And yeah, it always uh, really annoyed me that you could only reach out to 40 people in a class, 40 kids, or you could uh, reach out to 100 people in a public audience, but I wanted to do more. And so um, in the last 149 episodes out so far, I've been really glad to see that this has been listened to by you know tens of thousands of people around the world. I think that I've achieved my original goal. I think probably have even surpassed it to an extent. You know, if your <laughs> idea was that you couldn't reach more than 40, now you're reaching tens of thousands, really cool. Mm-hmm. So um, why the podcast medium though? I mean, wh- what was the reason for you to start a podcast over any other way of communicating science to, to the larger public? It's very accessible. Um, you know, even before I started this, I listened to a lot of other podcasts. They were mainly like in entertainment, like people reviewing TV or movies. And I... I just like the medium, like because you, you know it's very convenient to be able to download things, especially for free. You don't have to pay for it. Um, a lot of podcasts are free, and um, you can you can just stream it um, anytime that you want. You can do it while you're um, you know out on a walk, when you are cooking, when you are even in the shower. That's what I used to do uh, sometimes um, when you are working out, when you are on your way to work, on your daily commute. Uh, podcasts are just so convenient for listeners. And, you know, there really are no um, financial barriers to that, no geographical barriers, uh, no logistical barriers. And so I just think it's really like a a good medium for, you know, getting experts work and, and their words directly into the ears of people out there. I actually remember when you and I started dating, and this was back in 2014, Mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea what a podcast was. Yeah. And I remember that I probably once walked into you listening to something, and I was just amazed that there was such a thing called a podcast. Mm -hmm. So that actually 
probably highlights the the abyss in terms of technological knowledge between me and you. You tend but, to be, you tend to be quite um, not not so uh, aware of the technology stuff. N- not at all. Also, I'm not aware of pop culture at all, which you always make fun of. <laughs> so, and I suppose there are lo- lots of podcasts that are actually you know super saying linked to entertainment pop culture. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's always I've always seen you interested in the medium itself. So it doesn't really surprise me that you have decided to go with that for um, for communicating science to the wider public. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I have thought about like doing other stuff, like maybe uh, writing books, doing videos. Those take more work. <laughs> okay, but how did it all start anyway? Well, uh, I remember uh, a long time ago, I actually applied for a public engagement fund uh, that my university was offering in the public engagement office. And so... Um, you know, it's, it's very useful if you're able to get some money to help you buy the equipment, to help you um, pay for some of the programs, uh, the programs that you use for editing the show, for creating graphics. Um, all of that takes a bit of cash. <laughs> and there are different options that you can use. Um, so if you have a lot of money, of course, you can use a lot of the high-end programs. Um, I would say that probably my equipment and my setup that we're using today, all the stuff that I use right now, for editing the show is like sort of mid-range. So I'm not a big production, but um, it is more than, you know, if I had a personal budget because uh, my university was able to give me a bit of money for that. And um, in in preparing the show, like I really wanted to um, do several things with it. And I would say it boils down to two things. With the interviews that I do with lots of experts, the first aim or first goal that I had was to really showcase what it is we do in a lot of detail. I think that a lot of the time when scientists or anthropologists share their work, they're sort of in very short videos um, or their tweets or they're just not really long form. They don't, you re, we don't really get the chance to really get into it. What is their day-to-day life like? What is it that they um, concern themselves with and what sources do they use? What methods do they use? How often do they work with others in approaching their work? And that has sort of been demystified through these interviews because I get to talk to someone for about 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour, and you really uh, get the chance to really dig into all of that work. The second thing I wanted to go for is to really highlight that what we do in our work is done by a very broad range of different people, people from different backgrounds with different training. And when it comes to the study of humans and to fully appreciate that, you need to interview everybody who does something to do with the study of humans, whether that's in law, like you do, like uh, in, in bioarchaeology, like I do. But, you know, there are all sorts of creatives out there, scientists, people working in um, nonprofits, people working for or, uh, international organizations. Uh, there, there's all sorts of areas that a good understanding of human behavior or biology is required. And those were like the things that were really important to me. So all of this sounds like a very well thought out plan, mm-hmm. but what happens at the launch? At the launch? Yes. Well, do you, launch. What was your impression of the launch? Oh, uh, I mean, it was a kind of a busy week, really. <laughs> so uh, if I remember correctly, the launch was around the 10th of May last year. Uh, maybe you know the date better than I do. <laughs> the first episode came out on the 13th of May. 13th of May. Um, do you remember the the chat that we had on the sitting on our sofa and I told you about how I was feeling? 
I think I vaguely remember that. <laughs> we have lots of chats. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's difficult to pin down which one. But it, it definitely, I definitely do remember us sitting down on the sofa in a Hague apartment. And so why don't you tell the listeners what you told me? Well, at the time, <laughs> I remember actually being really scared. Um, I wasn't, it's really, uh, it's a very strange feeling. Like it wasn't like that was the first time I ever did anything that, you know, I, I knew that would be a really big deal. Like when I handed in my PhD um, and submitted my thesis, that was a big deal. Uh, I, I think even when you submitted your PhD, I thought that was a big deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, PhDs tend to be a bit of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, aside from that, like, you know, you, there's so many different um, chapters in your academic life that we go through. Um, finishing your master's degree, graduating for that, uh, graduating for your bachelor's degree. And, you know, there's so many other things like uh, the first time you ever teach a class, that's a scary thing that you do. Um, the very first time you get given the podium at a conference, the first time you organize your own conference and you're part of a team that does that, um, different uh, events that you do, you know, organizing seminars, um, maybe meeting someone important in the field that, that you've, you know, idolized and you've loved all their work so far and just meeting them in the, for the first time and telling them about your work, those are also like big moments. And so it wasn't like this feeling of, oh, I'm about to do something big is, was a new feeling, but it was, it's different because I knew that this podcast would entirely change my life because the thesis you, you hand it in, you don't have to continue like doing it. <laughs> like you finish writing it. The podcast, I knew that for so long as it was active, um, it would just be a part of my life. And it has been. Uh, I don't know when it will end. I don't really have any uh, foresight and I don't have any idea when it will draw to a close. Maybe I'll, I'll do it till, you know, I'm 90 years old. <laughs> well, hopefully it won't end anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure if it does end, it'll be for the right reasons. Uh, but, um, I don't, I don't see it right now. And so, yeah, it is continuous. And I knew that by launching it that week, you know, it was the beginning of a very long integrated part of like my life. And it was just really like mind boggling to consider before the episode, uh, before the first episode went out. You know, when we had that chat on the sofa, I think I could not actually grasp the the implications of you having to do the, the podcast for such, for such a long time because mm -hmm. for me as well, I actually had never, I had never dated anyone that was doing a podcast. So I didn't know what that <laughs> was going to look like. Mm -hmm. And we can really, I mean, I can really testify to the fact that the podcast has been part of your daily life for more than a year now. Uh, you know, every day I, I see you do something with the podcast, whether it is recording with someone or releasing an episode, editing the episode. It's, it's a constant ongoing work and I can see how much care you put into it as well, which is really heartwarming. I think it's really mm -hmm. good to see someone caring so much about a product, about something that they do. How, how, how has your life changed because I'm a podcaster? Well, my life has changed because you're a podcaster in the sense that I know there are certain moments in which I cannot enter a particular space, for example. <laughs> like what? <laughs> I don't know, when you're recording, for example, uh, and I am in the house, but you usually record when I'm at work. So that's the thing that, you know, we, we scheduled that very well. Uh, but, um, you know, there, are, there have been times when I was in the house as well and I knew that I had to be very quiet. I, you know, I had to, uh, to go and get a glass of water before you started and all of that. So I, I basically uh, learned how to arrive 
arrange my life around <laughs> the interview, around the one, one hour, one and a half hour interview. And to be honest, I mean, it's been very simple. And, you know, it, it kind of, it, it kind of comes simple because I am also in a way investing in the podcast, not as much as you are because I'm not the producer, but, you know, I, I live with the producer and the producer is my partner. So I'm naturally invested in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think about me launching it that week in particular? Well, that week was a an interesting week to launch the podcast. <laughs> well, basically, so you launched the podcast on the 13th of May, 20, uh, 2019. And then on the 18th of May, we were scheduled to graduate from our PhDs. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, so you launched a podcast in The Hague in the Netherlands. On but Monday. We, on Monday, yes. And at the end of that week, we were supposed to catch a flight to uh, Cambridge in the UK, where both of us were going to graduate. Yeah, it was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, of course, <clears throat> Yeah, because that's the schedule. And um, yeah, I remember back in those days, it was um, our friend, Dr. Sarah Louise de Croza. Uh, she, was, she was our guest on episode one. Um, she was also graduating the very same day that we were. So it was just a big day, a, a big week for everybody. Um, but I did have, I also released uh, episode two and three uh, with Steph, Steph Homhofer, a bioarchaeologist and a geneticist called Tom Booth. So yeah. yeah. And I, I definitely remember that because we were, we, I think we flew on uh, a Friday morning, we arrived in Cambridge and that was also special because it was the very first time that our Hong Kong family and our Italian family were going to meet. So it was also not just the graduation, but it was also the two families getting together for the first time. So there was a lot of planning for that and, you know, we kind of organized meals and everything, but then uh, also, uh, you know, it kind of coincided all with the podcast. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes when I look back, uh, because, you know, I tweeted at the time about, about doing all of that at the same time, I look back and I think like that, that, that person is like, just (laughs) that, that Michael in the past just has some really uh, wild ideas about what is an acceptable schedule to have. Well, let's say that I may have expressed that you have wild ideas from time to time. <laughs> and it didn't stop, you know. Uh, we, we spent a weekend with our families and then, you know, very soon afterwards, uh, it was, you know, continued release of episodes, uh, episodes four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like it, it just went on. Yeah, and I mean, so in the first period you were you were trying to, to see how best to manage the podcast, the interviews and how to schedule them and all of this. So, I mean, you went through a bit of a learning curve yourself at a certain point. Yeah. I can't be sure that I have really figured it out still, but I feel that, I think that the way that I schedule it is actually really dependent on like what else I have got going on in life. Um, I know that there's a lot that we have to do in the summer, for example. And when I know that's about to come, I know that I have to record a lot so that I can have a bunch of episodes in the in the can, so th- so to speak, and then we can, you know, then I don't have to record, and I just have to release the episodes as we go along. But yeah, in the very beginning, it was really uh, chaotic. It was really I didn't know how to really integrate into my life. There were like other there were other deadlines that I had and other projects that I was doing. Um, <laughs> somehow, some way, we're we're here. Um, at this point. And then uh, I got an invitation to be one of the episode guests. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, it was episode 50 that I invited you to be on. I I try to mark the occasions, you know, the big milestones with like a very special episode. And so, you know, episode 50, I, I just thought there was no one else 
that probably fit that better than you. And and uh, maybe the listeners don't know this actually, but you know, I uh, Michael and I live in the same house. <laughs> I received an email inviting me <laughs> inviting me to be the guest a guest for episode fifty. So I actually am treated in no different way from any other episode uh, episode guest <laughs> by Michael as the host of the podcast. Yeah, I still have the email, by the way, of course. I may have emailed my mom recently about um, episode 200 or 250. Okay, I didn't even know that. Yeah, but... <laughs> I okay, email, but thanks I, for I, telling me. Huh? I even emailed my mom. We'll see if he says yes. Okay, well, uh, episode 200 then. Stay, <laughs> stay tuned, listeners. Yes. Mm-hmm. So episode 50 was in uh, the summer of 2019. Uh, now you released 100 more episodes after that. Uh, you know What has happened since episode 50? Uh, it has just been a lot of... Well, I, I was really surprised to see uh, around that 50 to 100 time period to see the range of topics that we were delving into. Because even b- b- before I had you on the show, I had a very clear idea of like probably the, the people that I knew already, majority of them I, I was friends with already. Um, but because the show started to gain a lot of um, attention on social media and you know, it, it put me in contact with a lot of different people um, around that time. I was able to invite a, a, just a lot of different people that I never thought I would speak to, you know? Like, uh, like who? Well, you know, I oh, have... You don't need to name names, but, you know, which fields? Oh, well, uh, so for example, like in anime, like film animation and uh, direction, you know, I spoke to um, a Pixar director, uh, Bobby Alcide Rubio, who... You know, I never thought that I could email um, and, and have this exchange with a Pixar director and it was really cool. And the reason that I thought it would be appropriate was um, he had done a, a short film for Disney uh, and you can watch it on Disney Plus and it's called Float. And it was the first time that um, in the film and animation industry where the lead characters were Filipinos or Filipino-Americans. And it was really meaningful to me being half Filipino, but that was really cool. I've had, you, you know, when I look back at it, um, I'm just like astonished <laughs> that I would have uh, a dame on my show. I've had uh, Professor Dame Sue Black on the show. Uh, she's a forensic anthropologist. And um, it's just, I never thought I would have the privilege of speaking to someone like that, um, especially someone whose books I, I read when I was an undergraduate and, you know, just really inspires inspires me in the way that she really values outreach and, you know, educating the public about what forensic anthropologists do. So it's, it's, uh, that, that's what is really meaningful to me is, is being able to go all around the world, um, speak to all, all manner of professional or, or student, and just get a glimpse of like all of their, all of their work. And I suppose that if you want, I can give you the name of a couple of more dames that you could interview on the show. <laughs> I need I need Judy Dench's email address. That's exactly who I was thinking about. <laughs> Dame Judy Dench and yeah. Dame Maggie Smith. <laughs> okay, I, I'm a bit of a Downton Abbey fan, and in general, uh, those two actresses are great. <laughs> Michael knows knows that very very well by now. Yeah. Do you think there's any other way that the podcast has grown since episode fifty? Mm, I would say that. Because of like more recent events, so let's just take, uh, for example, the pandemic that has happened and, um, you know, and is still happening, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic really affected everybody that we know in our personal lives, everybody that we know in our professional lives, 
Um, and we read the news every day to see how it's affecting, um, you know, societies and communities around the world. Mm-hmm. And so that started to become more of a concern, uh, a public health concern around the world. I would say around like January or February, um, that's at least when I heard people in Hong Kong worrying about it um, because it's, it's where my family lives. And uh, because we have the experience of going through the SARS um, epidemic back in 2003, we, uh, I remember um, my family, you know, on the, on the family groups, group chats, we, we start to see, um, they started to talk about, you know, putting on face masks and who has face masks and we'll bring over a box to you um, and generally just staying home and, and keeping safe. What about you, like in uh, Northern Italy? Yeah, well, uh, I suppose the listeners will know that Northern Italy was one of the places that um, that was most hit, at least uh, at the very beginning of the epidemic. I believe that uh, Northern Italy was actually the hub where it all started in Europe because we had seen the uh, epidemic spread in East Asia first. And then, of course, because you know we're so interconnected, uh, we knew it had to arrive at some point in different, on different continents as well. And it just so happened that it uh, started in the north of Italy. Now, my family lives uh, not far from Venice. Well, I mean, an hour away from Venice, let's say. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was very worried. And I remember where, uh, looking at the Italian newspapers and Italian news and trying to gauge exactly what was happening over there. In a way, I was, I was more worried about Italy than Hong Kong because I know that people in Hong Kong had the rack together. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, you know, the in, Europe hasn't gone through an epidemic of, the, of these proportions in a very long time. And I think the, the people in general, and I'm not speaking about the government, I'm speaking about, you know, everyday ordinary people that, you know, go about their life and work and have families that were just caught off guard. guard. They didn't know what to do. Uh, they didn't know whether to put on masks. They didn't know exactly how to behave around this. Mm-hmm. And then lockdowns happened all over the, all over the continent. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, I can see who listens to my show. Um, everybody listens you know, around the world. So I know that we have listeners, you know, um, in Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, we have them in Australia, New Zealand. We also have listeners in, um, you know, Nigeria. We have um, South African listeners, Brazilian listeners, a lot of uh, North American and European listeners as well. And so um, I could sort of sense that COVID was affecting people slowly like it, it just sort of spread around the world uh, in terms of the um at, at in, initially it was panic but then also you know a lot of like careful thought as to like how different countries different societies would be able to um, adapt to them and then now we of course have a lot of um those those charts that show the curve of different countries where we're comparing different uh, public health measures that different states have taken and when i was looking at all of this i knew that the podcast, it, it plays a very small role. Um, but I would say, you know, I started to ask my guests and, you know, try and get an understanding of how it was affecting their lives through the show. And I would always ask them, you know, questions. I still ask them actually uh, about, you know, how, how is, um, you know, having to self-isolate in your home, working from home, affecting your research, affecting just your, your personal life and your daily life. And, I don't know. I hope that it is, you know, giving listeners a sense of um, that they're not alone in these struggles, whatever they're, whatever they're, they're struggling through. And in general, anyway, um, because we are exploring so many different topics on the show, hopefully it's like some sort of escape and an, an entertainment and a bit of educational content as well. 
as people are struggling through this, maybe they just need to hear other people talk <laughs> because that's what they're lacking a lot of in their day-to-day life. Well, maybe in four or 500 years, an archaeologist will discover the podcast to listen to it and we try to reconstruct a little bit of how life during COVID happened through the lens of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a lot of people, like all, like a lot of podcasters around the world, um, in the podcasting world, you know, have had to talk about this. Um, not have to, had to, but it's just sort of weaved its way into so many conversations, no matter what the podcasts are about. And so, yeah, like it's just sort of been interesting to to see how, for example, like in my field, uh, a lot of people have to switch their teaching online. They have to come up with virtual ways of teaching or online ways of teaching. Suddenly, like the utility and the usefulness of having these podcast episodes with experts in genetics or primatology, social anthropology, they became very useful for um, a lot of lecturers, a lot of my colleagues to use in their teaching. Like how? Well, uh, I, I know that some of my colleagues are assigning their students the task of going through my podcast episodes and then, for example, writing 500 words about how do we estimate stature or height, human height in populations using, using skeletons in archaeology, or um, perhaps trying to understand, um, you know, monkey behavior in the, in the jungles of, uh, of India. Uh, we have some episodes about that. And then they write 500 words about that, or they, they come up with, um, they, they draw up an infographic, or uh, maybe they have to give a presentation on Zoom with the rest of the class based on what they learned through my podcast episode. So that's been really cool to witness. Well, to be frank with you, I, I don't think I can even remember how life before COVID was in a way, because it's been such a long time that uh, both of us actually have been uh, in isolation at the house because I haven't been going to work. And that's how actually I have been able to see how you record on a daily basis. And that's how I was able to arrange my day basically around uh, your, your recording needs, you know, in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think that life is really different here. Um, you know, for a majority of the time that we have uh, lived here together, it's been that you go to work. And so from like about nine-ish to, you know, 6 p.m., that's where you would be. And so now it really has been 24-7 for weeks and weeks. And um, I don't know, I think that it's gone, you know, as well as it can go in the circumstances. so bad. No, don't say that. It's gone as well as it can go. It's like we are always vice. No, but I just mean like maybe you use that like a slightly different phrase. I don't care. I don't care. Well, I do. No, but okay. So you know, I I can see like online because of the stories that people share. That of course, for any relationship, <laughs> for any relationship, you need distance sometimes. You know, you need distance from each other. I just feel like a lot of maybe like communication problems or uh, issues that we might have had that that was like something of uh, our, our earlier years yeah definitely <laughs> but somehow this uh, this has been really uh, i would say really nice as an experience because we know how to like set up boundaries and we, we know how to like just tell each other what we need but also be sensitive to what the other one needs and you know if, if you need to concentrate on something then i will go into the bedroom for example and hang out there uh we've been able to like work that out but I know that it's been a struggle for like many other people. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that that's really true what you said, that we, you know, we kind of worked all the all the communication uh, issues earlier on. And, and now this has been actually really, really fun. It was actually, um, I regard it as a bit of a privilege, really, that we could spend so much time together. Uh, while at the same time, you know, I was doing my job, you were doing your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and everything really, you know, around us was a bit uncertain because, uh, because of, the, of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, we also had to organize a life in terms of how do we go to the supermarket and get provisions. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we had our own plan of how to do that, what time of the day, how many times a week. So um, it, it, was, it was also, in, in a way, in a roundabout way, it was also kind of a fun thing to do together. Mm-hmm. But of course, not fun altogether, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I suppose that one of the way in which it wasn't really fun, it's also that there was, um, let's say, a bit of uh, finger pointing about the uh, where the pandemic started, and people started to think that you know it was coming from a particular place in the world, and particular people were linked to it, and we even had a you know a s- small but very um, unpleasant experience in that respect. Mm-hmm. So uh, around March, so um, we. Massimo and I, we were like taking the train in March and it was for some very brief and, you know, necessary travel while being the only ones in the train station to wear masks. Yeah, that that, that was kind of unsettling, really. I would imagine that more more people would have done that by the time already. Yeah, they're not, you know, a lot of people still aren't doing it. Uh, yeah. And now it's uh, in the summer that we're recording this. Yeah, it's just baffling to me. Really. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, yeah, it was unsettling, you know, and, you know, we were the only ones that we could see in Amsterdam and The Hague to wear masks. Um, the reason that we wore masks back then was uh, while both of us are very well, masks, you know, do they, they barricade the virus from entering our systems to some extent. You know, they have been proven to be protective by scientists. And so we bought them and we wear them. And uh, we, you know, we were, I guess also we, we were hoping that it would be a bit more normalized like over here in the Netherlands because um, a society with like 100% of mask wearers will be a society that doesn't spread the virus. But not, not, not as much as any other society, yeah, I suppose. That spreads it a lot less. And so these are lessons that, you know, I learned in 2003 when you know, SARS uh, was happening in in Hong Kong. And we even like took a selfie. I remember that we took a selfie with our masks on. Yeah, we did. So that our families in Hong Kong and Northern Italy could see. And, you know, we're here. And uh, at the time, you also were flying to London. You know, London, um, Amsterdam, these are, you know, big hubs where disease could possibly spread. And so we were just trying to be cautious of this. And so we sent them a photo and it makes our family happy. You know, it makes them feel that we're safe, right? We're taking things seriously. And so when we were, uh, you know, we were okay to be stay, staying alert. But when we arrived um, at a particular train station in Amsterdam, there was this group of women who were uh, passing by us and they were all wearing party hats. It looked like they were on, um, in Britain, we call them a Hindu. Uh, it's, a classic, it's a classic British Hindu. You see them so many times when you, <laughs> when you go through Amsterdam airport. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they're on their way to a uh, party, I guess. And, you know, seeing us with masks and maybe because also they saw that I was Asian, they decided to sort of like cough very loudly. It was just so fake. And laugh really openly at us. 
and just sort of being like, <laughs> like in our direction. And I found myself like just sort of shocked at, you know, what the, what the heck was going on. Right. So I remember that we were on an escalator and uh, we were wearing our masks and that happened that you just described. And I looked at you I was horrified. <laughs> I actually don't see why anyone would do that. I mean, especially because you're doing something by wearing a mask. You're doing something which is very conscious. You know, you're, you're just taking uh, taking it seriously for yourself and for everyone around you. Because, as, you know, as you just said, wearing a mask prevents any virus that you have in your body from uh, spreading around too much or at all. So it, it was just mind-boggling to see that happen. Do you remember what my initial reaction was at the time? Well, at the time, you didn't really react in any particular way. So I didn't think that the particular episode had had any kind of effect on you or any way, even if it had any effect, it would have been a, a limited one. But we have actually found ourselves speaking about that episode quite a few times since, since it happened in March. So it definitely, uh, I definitely was wrong in, in, in that respect. You know, it, it affected you much more than I, than I would have envisaged. It's basically just, uh, you know, what I, I think a lot of, you know, Asians or, you know, minority um, people who live in Europe uh, or the UK have to do sometimes, which is just to brush it aside, even laugh at it. Um, because to just laugh at it and like take part in the joke is, is easier than really confronting what is at the root of it, which is just bigotry and racism. And, um, but, you know, because that's like, it's so, it's so internalized, I guess, that I should just laugh it off or just be, be strong, quote unquote, and just not care. That is just a very like, uh, it's, it's just like the natural reaction that I think a lot of people have, feel that they have to do. But when I had some time to think about it some more, um, it was really hard. Like when I really look back at it, because, you know, even, even fr from their point of view, it, it didn't really, um, it probably seems like quite, innocuous like it doesn't do do much it wasn't like a big deal to them but, but for me when I really think about it that was that is my family and that is like my my partner you know that we we have this face mask wearing culture that we all share we all care about each other's welfare and it was my life experiences of living in Hong Kong that taught me that that's a good idea and so sort of like the the, the family the partner my life in Hong Kong these are three things that you know, they, they most empower me to like wake up in the morning and feel like, you know, I, I am, I'm loved and I have a, I have a great support system. And, um, for whatever reason, when they, when they mocked me, I think in, inside, I felt like I like lost all my power. Like I felt embarrassed because I was, I was embarrassed that my mom hopes that we get masks and, um, how my partner wants me to. And, uh, how different I was from everybody else in the train station who wasn't wearing one. And then I just sort of felt like ashamed of it. And well, it just wasn't like the, the most fun train trip I've ever taken. Well, I suppose that when you talk to me about that, the, the very first time uh, after it happened, I think it was after my, I had come back from London. I, I was really sad actually that they, you know, that you went through the kind of experience because of people that we didn't even know and for something that wasn't even a good reason in a way to, to, to mock anyone really. And then, you know, as, as more recent events have shown, it's, it's just that, you know, racism is, is rampant and it's just a very big problem everywhere. 
Yeah, I think the recent events have definitely shown that. Um, I think we're both thinking of you know what's happening right now, actually, in the United States of America in particular. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's it's been nearly three weeks since the the event happened, and we've seen a spread of uh, protests all across the United States, but also protests in support in many other countries in the world, and some of them actually, I think, happen in the Netherlands as well. I think I saw a few days ago on Twitter a. Um, a photo of the main square in Amsterdam where there was a Black Lives Matter protest uh, in support of the movement in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I talked to some of my guests about this on the show, even, and uh, I I find it really um, inspiring to see a lot of people speaking up against anti-Black racism. Um, and I find it really uh, just also, not just intellectually, interesting, but, you know, I, I'm also just psychologically and emotionally invested in this idea of maybe the systems need to be uprooted, like they need to be um, turned into something else. We need to abolish um, or we need to defund certain systems that, you know, really punish uh, black people and indigenous communities. But I hate that it, it comes at a cost. Like I hate that it comes at the, the you know such high cost for for the advocates for the activists for the families and especially those who um, you know have been killed at the hands of police you know that this change comes because of because of these these killings I don't like that it comes with that cost yeah of course I mean the the ideal situation is is the one where change happens without any bad thing having to be the catalyst for that change mm-hmm. um, but I was wondering, you know, you mentioned that you interview people on your podcast about uh, what's happening in the United States at the moment. And um, I mean, h- how did the events of these last few weeks impact the way in which you're thinking about the podcast and, you know, the way in which you are uh, scheduling your episodes? Well, um, you know, as I said earlier, like there are a lot of episodes I had pre-recorded because the, the summer was coming and I knew that we would be really busy. But it, it occurred to me very uh, early on in the movement that, I, I couldn't release those episodes because it was sort of not um, appropriate. Like it, it wasn't going to be um, appropriate to be having my platform without addressing what was happening. And I thought about it very carefully. And in the last two weeks, you won't believe how many messages I get from people asking me to sort of educate them on how to be anti-racist, basically. Like I get a lot of messages that are asking me for help. They want to say the right thing, but they don't want to be performative, that they want to commit to change. But if they say it, it's not really the change yet. Like they'll have work to do and the, the change won't come until weeks or months later. So how do they say the right thing without looking hollow? Right. You know, my greatest advice for, for everybody is, um, that I keep telling them, sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't, is, you know, if you want to look sincere in your commitment to, you know, combating anti-black racism, just be sincere. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I remember that you and I had many, many conversations about uh, anti-racism. And one of the things that, uh, that I remember the most is exactly this sentence. If you want to be sincere about something, you just need to believe it. You just need to be sincere yeah. for real. <laughs> I I find that really obvious, you know, and I get it. Like, you know, when I was younger, um, when I was growing up in Hong Kong or even when I was an undergrad and maybe less clued up about these um, 
you know, critical race theory or uh, really understood how, you know, hiring practices work in academia. Um, how do you negotiate for, you know, greater gender pay equality? You know, all of these things I, I never really knew about. And I, I understand that, you know, maybe in the social media age where you are worried about your quote unquote brand and like your image of how you quote unquote sell yourself online and to others, even in your own spaces, like in your departments and labs, I get that it can be really easy to forget that there has to be substance and not just an appearance of being a good ally or being a good, um, you know, an ethical academic. And so, um, and so when it comes to the podcast, I was really like trying to reflect on what would be the right thing to do. And I knew like instantly it wouldn't be okay to um, like platform other people at this moment. I needed to somehow, if I did do anything, then, you know, it would just to not air any episodes because then at least I wouldn't be um, taking up space in the, in the online world with, um, with, with voices who are, who are not black. And, but what I did wonder was, um, you know, I podcast about anthropology and history and biology. I was wondering, would there be guests who would be interested in talking about what's happening right now? Um, because I know from, from my point of view, there are moments where I definitely don't want to read about things. I find it actually really hard to watch documentaries or even movies that are based on um, the experiences of like um, Asians who go through a lot of crap sometimes. I find it really hard to um, watch documentaries or watch movies that are like about how my communities are, have been exploited or have been, um, you know, disadvantaged. Like it, it just really pains me because I recognize myself on the screen. And so, you know, when it comes to certain things, I find it hard to confront, but when it comes to some other things, like let's say, um, we are talking about, you know, um, public understanding of science and how a lot of people are climate change deniers. A lot of people are, um, you know, anti-vaxxers. These sorts of things, they, they do affect me too. Like they affect all of our lives and all of our societies, people in my family and communities. But um, for whatever reason, for, for these subjects or these topics, um, I want to read books. I want to read articles and read other people's analyses on Twitter. It's like my intellectual brain helps my emotional brain. Um, by delving into it. And we're talking about two weeks before uh, this recording right now. I, I invited, you know, maybe like about a dozen anthropologists. Um, not all of them got back to me, which is completely fine. But um, some of them said, you know, not now, but they would be interested later in the summer or in the fall. Uh, but there were like a few that really wanted to come on the show. And so, you know, episodes 135, 136, 137 with Imani um, with Strong Tucker, Dr. Orasami Burton, and Jason Marie's Porter, uh, I, I found it really, you know, just uh, I was just so grateful that they wanted to sort of process it themselves, but also educate everybody else like during this time. And when I was like thinking about how to, you know, devise my questions, how to interview them, I just really wanted to make sure that what they cared about was the subject of the show. In general, I do that anyway with, with all of my guests, but uh, this in particular, you know, they, they are black scholars and 
you know, they understand the, the socio-historical context and the politics. They understand the experience of being black in America. And I wanted to get their insights because they, yeah, that's who, that's, that's who we should hear from uh, these days. And I was so happy to be able to um, platform them on my podcast. I, I had many black scholars on the show even before this. Um, I, I find it interesting or fascinating to see people, other people out there. I'm not, I'm not going to even uh, hide this. This is, this is just shade. It really is shade that I'm about to give, which is that I can see that there are other podcasters who, um, who, who, who only wants to highlight black voices or indigenous voices because the moments call for them now. But then previously, you know, dozens and dozens of episodes without black, indigenous, or people of color. And I, f I feel that, you know, ever since I started this show, I, I, I thought before I launched it that I cannot have it be made up of like a homogenous set of guests. And so it wasn't the first time, you know, it wasn't the first week I've ever like had black guests on the show. I think I had, you know, over, over two dozen of them like all together. And I feel really good about it. Just because I know that it, it not you know more than it providing um, learning or, or growth, I guess uh, for me, um, it also is, I think, really helpful for any Black listeners out there because they're able to hear from Black scholars who know about these topics in an academic way, and I'm facilitating the communication between them. So you know, I was really like. T uh, in particular, I remember, for example, when um, Ori or, or Dr. Orasami Burton, when he was describing what this means for his family, and he talked a lot about how, you know, being a father and, and being an African-American father uh, who lives in D.C., very close to the movements, it really ch it changes how he views his work, and he uses his work to sort of help him process what is going on in his personal life. And then, but then of course, his personal experience is also what is informing. And the conversations that he has with his community are his ethnographic work and they inform his research. Well, I remember that when you were about to start the podcast, even before the famous launch week that we spoke about earlier on, you and I had many, many conversations about who you would like to invite, who you would like to platform. And I remember that it was always, always uppermost in your mind that you wanted to have a broad variety of people and to amplify the voices of those that maybe through other media might not actually uh, find it easy to, to, to be amplified. So, you know, the indigenous scholars, the, the black community scholars and so on. So it's always been something that you've been thinking about a lot. And I suppose that, you know, that, that must link back to the experiences that you yourself had and, you saw, and the people around you had uh, during the, these last 10, 11 years. You know, all, all together, like, you know, um, I'm sure we will end this on a happier note. But, but before, before, before that, um, you know, I, I am thinking a lot about like what this podcast has, has been doing like in the last year. And I think of it as sort of like, the, it's so natural. Like to me, it's such a natural fit for, you know, what comes after my 10 or 11 years of getting my, my bachelor's, master's and PhD. You know, you, you know, you know this more than anybody else, but, you know, I think a lot of other people who, who listen to the show know this too. But when I know that junior scholars or marginalized students, they, they are not having a great time 
studying anthropology or archaeology, uh, it I really really feel it like in my heart. Like I feel that it's not okay, and like it hurts me to know that you know people have a have a dream or they have a goal. They have meaningful work that they want to do. They have scientific questions that they're interested in. It really really like pains me to know that that is not something people have fun doing. You want to help people fundamentally. That's the thing. You really want to be there for, for people around you and, uh, and, and not just not be selfish. Mm-hmm. And it would be that easy, actually. Just, just try to put yourself in another person's shoes. And you know, what would they like to receive in that particular moment? What kind of attention and what kind of words? And people don't get to see really how much it hurts, you know, because I think all of us, um, if we've ever been through any kind of you know, marginalization experience, we feel that we cannot show our vulnerable side because if we, if we were to do that, if we were to cry, if we were to complain, if we were to raise concern, however politely or however radically, it's not going to be taken well. And then we will lose our opportunities. We will lose our funding. We will lose our network and, you know, the colleagues that we get to collaborate with because people don't like it when, when these things are brought to light, basically. Yeah, because they're uncomfortable. People, because don't, they're people just don't want to face, the, to, to face the, the uncomfortable. Right. So, you know, I hope that, that I think about sometimes is just that people don't know how much it hurts. Um, people don't, don't get to see that. And I think that, um, at least in my experience of sharing those kind of memories or those kinds of um, challenges with others, you know, my friends, they understand a bit more because they can see that it's like, it's very sad. And, um, uh, you've seen, you've, you've seen me go through like some pretty bad or, you know, some of the worst experiences I've ever had yeah. in my life. But then of course it also, you know, it also happens within people that are your colleagues, you know, your, your PhD student, um, colleagues and people above you, you know, the postdoctorals people, people in the faculty, um, it, it just is really hard, basically, when when something when you're expecting something good out of someone, and they don't really give you that that good that you that you would like them to be able to give or to think about giving. It's just very hard to see that people don't want to help someone who might need help. And if I just think about like some of the episodes or some of the the things that like have happened um, to me. Uh, I, I obviously care very deeply about this uh, issue of, you know, equity or everybody equity of um, opportunity. Um, I, I want everybody to be able to do their science or their anthropology. I want everybody to be highlighted, you know, on, on websites and social media, in our outreach activities. I want everybody's work to be celebrated. And when you know that there is clear inequity, of opportunity because some people are favored over others or um, you know that there's, you know, real harm being done by certain people um, against other people and I care about it. I don't know why some people do not take it upon themselves to also show that they care. And I I get that, you know, in academia, it's like a very... uh, it's like the Game of Thrones, you know, like, it, you know, you just have to worry about like yourself, some might say, or some might think, some might believe, some might have internalized without even thinking 
But for me, it never really was like that. You know, I, I enjoy the process of working with others and um, I don't need everybody to be productive paper machines. Like I, I want everybody to be happy first and foremost. I want everybody to feel safe. Um, and so it's just really like, and so it's, it's just disappointing to know that in terms of these ethics or these morals, these this sort of empathetic um thinking is not shared by everyone. And so I have talked to hundreds of people about this problem, uh, for example, of racism in the academy. I know people who have not ever had a conversation about this, you know, with me. And I make it very easy for people to have conversations with me. Like I, I, uh, you know, all my DMS are open on Twitter. You can email me anytime if you wanted to Skype or just sit down and have a conversation. I, I would love to see that because to talk about racism in the Academy is to see also that I have value. If they don't want to tackle racism in the Academy together, then fundamentally you're like a complicit in sort of being, staying silent and, maintaining the idea that certain people don't belong, which includes me. And that's why like it hits really hard when I sense that some people are not really wanting to engage with this topic. I suppose it's a usual thing that, you know, when people want to do something, they find a way of doing it. And the fact that hasn't been done so far, it means that there hasn't been a will to, to change the systems that we have. And of course, these systems, they, they haven't, they had an impact on your life for the last, you know, 10, 11 years that you have been in, in the UK first and then the Netherlands. I would even argue like even before that, because of course I grew up, I was born in the British colony of Hong Kong. Um, and then of course, uh, there, there's, you know, that, that carries on even after yeah. it's returned to China. But I feel like, um, you know, in my overall experience of being in the UK and the Netherlands, uh, I feel honestly, like just great disappointment. I feel, you know, happy and I feel, um, you know, proud and feel very grateful for many of the experiences that I've had and accomplishments that I've, that I've uh, had. But the, the thing is that it also comes with great disappointment in, you know, when I first came over here and I was pursuing my education and pursuing a career, I didn't think that I would face such barriers. Like I knew that there could be, but I wouldn't know how exclusionary or how violent it, like, it could actually end up being. You know, my honest feeling is that, you know, I gave, I gave it everything that I had. I'm not the best anthropologist out there, but I, I tried very hard to, to, to give, give the tasks that I had, like all my energy, you know, um, especially that PhD and especially in my teaching activities. Like I spent, I spent all my time like trying to do that well. And um, it's, re it's just really uh, honestly disappointing and uh, really painful to consider how that doesn't necessarily land you a job. Now, I think that um, although I'm not the best scholar there is out there, I do think that I have value. I think that, you know, my PhD project was really good. Like I'm proud of it. I think that I found original knowledge. Um, I think that the way that I taught was always innovative, always sensitive. Um, I always got you know good uh, evaluations. I believe about like my teaching. Um, I was able to communicate like all of these things to young people. I feel that that wasn't valued for whatever reason. And I've seen people get jobs that are like 
the ones that I would want. And I don't understand like where, where I went wrong because I, I did try very hard. It isn't as simple as saying that it is competitive, the job market. I, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that if you're an international student and if you are, um, you know, not a white person or not, not growing up in the Western world and not growing up with, with a lot of money, you're going to be disadvantaged because you, do, you actually don't have as much network. You have to work 10 times as hard just to get one tenth of the same respect. So when I look back at it, you know, it, it is a lot of this um, sadness and disappointment and pain like wrapped up also in, you know, the great joys that I felt in, you know, being able to accomplish this or that, um, being able to meet you, being able to start a podcast in that space initially. But at the same time, it's still like a lot of pain. Yeah, and you know it's it's sad. I've seen the sadness myself, and you know I've been sad with you many, many times because of of, of the the way that some people have behaved, and the way that some people have treated you and and those around you. And, and I think it's way too easy to say that you know it's competitive, it's academic, and we have only a few jobs. But the reality of fact is that it's going to be a certain set of people that are going to have a harder time than others. And I don't understand why some people don't want to help that situation or don't want to um, acknowledge that. Like it, it honestly feels very like erasing of like my experience because I know it to be real. I know like what it feels like. Um, and so when people don't want to acknowledge that, it hurts. Like it really hurts. And especially from people that you look up to, especially from people who you expected better out of, people who, you know, at, at, uh, initially wanted to work with you, collaborate with you, but then suddenly... Um, what I've seen in the last, you know, few months is that when it, when suddenly it's about this topic of racism and actually trying to look at things like the problem of white privilege or white fragility, white supremacy, um, the fact that white people get more in archaeology and anthropology in terms of opportunity and funding and grants and rewards for doing such a job, suddenly. They're not as invested in working with me. They don't want to listen to my voice. They don't want to listen to the to the many people who are black, indigenous, or of color in our in our departments. That hurts because they fundamentally don't see us like belonging. This is where I put all of my energy in. You know, it's like all my eggs in this basket. And I'm not going to quit. I'm never going to like not be an anthropologist or archaeologist. But, you know, now we have the added burden of having to figure out a way to like do this while also having to confront their ignorance or, you know, honestly, willful ignorance many, many a time. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where BIPOCs like get their energy, but it's a, it's a lot and I admire it. But, you know, we all, we, we, it shouldn't be this way. No, it definitely shouldn't. So it's been 11 years since you moved out of Hong Kong into the UK and then the Netherlands. And, you know, you, you said many times that you, you learned a lot, but, you know, if you had to say, what are the lessons that you're really bringing with you after these 11 years? The thing that I always think about is, you know, um, especially lately is when I left Hong Kong, what was I leaving behind and did I really appreciate it enough? Um, I actually don't think that it matters whether you are moving 9,500 kilometers to pursue your education or whether you're just moving down the street um, and you're you know, moving out of your family's home for the first time to attend a university. I think that everybody 
needs to understand that the academy is very dehumanizing. Like it doesn't want you to stay who you are. There's a certain type of individual that it molds you to be in order to succeed in it. And what I have seen is, I don't know if you have the same sense, but you know, some of the best scholarship, the best books and articles, they're written with a voice behind it. They're written with a vision, with someone sharing their unique perspective I think that, um, especially if you're like in the sciences, sometimes you can really tell that someone has been completely stripped of their personality and their their opinion, their their voice, their perspective. Um, I think it's so important to remember who you are and to to have that be on on the paper. And uh, I I remember just like when I think when I look back at it, there's so many aspects of my identity as a Hong Konger that has been neglected like for many years and it isn't only until like you know after my phd i think about it and i you know want to make more hong kong food i want to talk to my family more and i want to understand hong kong history and politics more i don't understand why for my first seven or eight years here i completely ignored that and i think it's it's probably a large part due to wanting to fit in in academia and assimilate so that so that ultimately I had a better, better chances of staying in academia over here in the Western world. Any, anything else? Another big lesson is also, you know, is to really be careful about the relationships that you make, not in like any sort of skeptical, like don't be overly cautious, but you know, you only have like finite amount of time on earth. You know, you only have like a certain number of hours you have and you want to make sure that you're investing that energy and that time into relationships with people that are fair. And I think that, again, the academy forces you to want to appease certain people. And so you you don't really think about your own concerns and your own time as valuable as other people's. And so you want to find people in your life, your colleagues, your students, your mentors, um, other people, even outside of the academy, you want to make sure that you have a good support network and you know, that you're developing relationships where it's fair and also that it's genuine. You want people to be able to have your back and will always listen and will always believe you and will always support whatever actions you want to take in your life, whatever directions you want to take your work in. Um, you know, I've had to find out the, the hard way that some relationships were not as genuine as, as I thought they were. You know, they, they only wanted me so that they could use me basically so that they could um, have my talents or have my skills be used for their particular agendas. And what I thought was a friendship as well as a professional working relationship was not a friendship in the end. How was that? How was that for you? Uh, well, you know, it's, um, there, there, words I don't want to say uh, on the podcast, but you know, it's crap. <laughs> That's one I can say. Well, yeah. So having a support system, I have seen in myself that it's been really important to you. I've seen how much you have um, you've been able to to speak to people and have people be there for you. Of course, you've been there for many, many, many of them, and they wouldn't have been there for you if you hadn't been there for them. But I, I no, had, I, I think that's uh, you know sometimes it was them being more there for me first, and then yeah, sure. I mean, it doesn't need to be rebalanced. It doesn't need to be fifty fifty. But the important thing is to have to have a number of people that that are really they're really meaningful and that you know are going to be there for you no matter what. And again. I've been really able to see that um, in in uh, in the time that we've been together, um, because you know there's there's people that have always been there for you. There's there's 
is your go-to persons. What do you think about the people that, you know, we or I have made a decision to sort of let go? Well, if you decide to let go, I, I don't think that the decision to let go of someone that you thought was meaningful is ever is, is easy at any point in anyone's life. So I, I know that making that decision must have come with uh, a lot of thinking. It must have come with uh, a lot of sadness as well, uh, maybe depending on how important that person was for you. But ultimately, um, I think that if someone makes a decision like that, it means that you really have exhausted any other way uh, that, that, that you can think of having a relationship with that, with that or those persons. So, um, you know, it's, it's perfectly understandable, I think. And I, I support the fact that you, you made decisions like this. Because it's important to care for some for, for yourself. And if caring for yourself also goes through that, mm-hmm. then that's okay. Yeah. And I know it's a very normal thing for like, you know, all, all of us, you know, there, there are people that are in our life and they sort of, um, they're in our life for a reason. And then, you know, there's, there's a reason that sometimes, you know, you're just not as close anymore after a certain point, like say you have to move away and then you live in different places, for example, you don't get to see them every day when the reason is that, you know, you're disappointed in them. Um, that's a different thing. And like, you know, there are even people right now that I can think of who like, I'm thinking of letting go. And, uh, that in itself is also stressful to, to sort of worry about, you know, going forward. Do I want to, do I want to maintain a relationship with this person? You know, but at the, at the very root of it, like, you know, as you say, it it is really, it, it really hurts to like, have to say, to say like, you know, that you, you don't want to spend time with someone anymore because, um, when we were, when we were colleagues, that was okay. Um, but it, it's very clear that we're like on different pages regarding some some issues. I, I I always want to reconcile that. It's not like I hate people. Uh, even all the even all the people that I may have blocked on social media, I don't want that to be forever. I never want that to be always the case. I actually would love to get on the same page, even with people who have like completely opposite views. I'm open to like working it out. Um, and you said that to me so many times, actually, because, you know, as you said, and you said it earlier on as well, you know, your DMs are open, you're very reachable via email, you know, you're always open for a Skype chat or for a, for a, for a call. And I can, I lose count, I can lose count of all the times that you told me that even for those people that are not very much in touch with you anymore, uh, you would love to get a message from them and uh, that says, can we have a chat? Can we try and get on the same page about a few, a few things? Mm-hmm. And it would be so rewarding that if, if people are actually open to that. Yeah. But the, you know, on, on the flip side of that is of course that, um, in your struggle, I have also found it really, really nice to be able to meet some new people. You know, there were people that I even knew during my PhD that I wasn't that close to, and then they became closer after I finished. Um, so that has been really nice to develop those friendships and even working relationships as well. So you know, I, I, that's the general ebb and flow of life. I think that people come in and out of your life, but you know, I, all, all I'm saying is just that, you know, I, I don't want to harbor any ill feelings towards anybody on this planet. And 
I would love to to work things out with some people, but it, it, it's it's still very difficult though because you know some of the interactions that we had were really harmful or really hurtful for me. Yes, but having lived we lived with you and having been with you for quite some time, I know that you're not the kind of person that harbors bad feelings about in respect of anyone. You you just want to be on the same page as other people. Anyway, I, I, that was a lot, but you know, if anybody listening wants to talk to me, you know, privately or even just publicly on Twitter and wants to um, remark on any part of this um, stuff that I've talked about already or that we've talked about, then do so. Um, but uh, I'm aware that this has been a very long recording already. So I think we actually have to now, I guess, share some news. Yeah. Well, we do have interesting news for all of you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really weird, to be honest, because um, the news or I guess uh, what we've, uh, decisions that we've made very recently were made uh, in this specific context um, of a pandemic, but it happened. But uh, yes, amidst this, we have decided on uh, some very big life changes. And by big life changes, we mean 9,500 kilometers, <laughs> big, big, big <laughs> life changes. <laughs> so I've lived here uh, in the UK or Europe for 10 or 11 years. About five and a half years ago, um, I met this Northern Italian man. Who's that? Um, don't know. He's an international lawyer. You all know him. You should, you should introduce me. Um, and we've uh, been through two PhDs together. Uh, we have you know, lived in two countries together and we are about to live in a third one. Yes. And the third country is? <laughs> Drum roll. <laughs> we are moving to Hong Kong. Yeah. So what happened is that uh, we have made a decision to move the opposite way. So we are taking uh, all our stuff. Uh, if you could see our house right now, it is a complete mess. Mm-hmm. There's boxes everywhere, stuff wrapped in bubble wrap. You, you wouldn't even believe that people actually live in this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going uh, to go to Hong Kong to, to start a new chapter of our life together. What are you doing in Hong Kong? I will be starting to teach. I have a, a teaching uh, job that awaits me mm-hmm. and uh, it's at a university and I will be uh, taking it up in August. In August? Wow. Yeah. Mm. So again, this is the 13th of June, people, and we're about, literally about to move. Yes. I mean, we're recording this, you know, many weeks beforehand, um, before this is going up. So... Time is weird, I mean, but time was already weird in uh, the pandemic. But um, yes, in August, we will be in Hong Kong. Yeah, and if anyone follows Michael on Instagram already, the uh, we will be amping up all the yummy Cantonese food <laughs> that, that Michael always puts on his Instagram stories. And Japanese food, and oh, yes. Thai food, and you know Singaporean food, and Indian food. The more the better. Yeah even French food and British food and Italian food. Well, that's always a thing, isn't it? Which we might sometimes even do better. (laughs) Probably, yes. I mean, I am a bit scared of of finding the right ingredients for Italian food, but I'm sure that we can find a spot in Hong Kong that allows us to do that. Uh, Something that we already planned on doing in the first week, apparently, is we're going to have a date in Pizza Hut. So I can't wait for that. Yeah, I mean, after my quarantine, because apparently it's still compulsory to quarantine for two weeks upon arrival. So, yeah. Are you looking forward to authentic 
Italian pizza I mean, at Pizza Hut? I mean, I don't know about authentic, but I suppose I've never had Pizza Hut before. <laughs> I, I, I remember that one video that Pizza Hut once made about them making Southern Italian nonnas and nonos try, uh, nonni and nonne, sorry, because I'm Italian, uh, try Pizza Hut and none of them were particularly impressed. So <laughs> I do not know what my reaction will be, but you know, keep, keep, keep in the loop uh, and look at, look at the Instagram stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about you, Michael? What are you doing in Hong Kong? Oh, you know, everybody knows me by now and it's, uh, I'm, I'm hustling. Um, I'm doing lots of stuff. Uh, well, hopefully, um, in general, like I, I'm, uh, at this moment in time this summer, uh, existing in a very like creative and boundless place. Like I don't have to worry about logistics or practicalities just yet. Um, but in general, I'm just enjoying like this time where I can just be creative and it's like a blank slate because I'm going back home. Sure. Everything is familiar in some ways and my family will be there. I'll be in an environment that I recognize. Um, but also it's all new because I'm coming back with specific qualifications and experience and whether that will be in research that I work in, in science communication, in other forms of public uh, engagement with writing or with blogging or with video or audio or uh, I don't know working with like local radio or newspapers or something or maybe doing stuff at home you know like I could be hosting you know online webinars all that kind of thing uh, could be a possibility well I for one I'm super interested to see what's going to happen and it's, it's actually really really cool to be in this creative space sometimes I wish myself I could have been a little bit of one but uh, yeah I'm really curious to see what Michael's going to come up with yeah it must be so boring just getting published again and again <laughs> I'm not going to engage with that <laughs> just writing papers that no one's going to read well probably I mean they're very specific <laughs> I think that you you are well read. Like uh, people read your stuff. I hope so. <laughs> uh, since since we recorded with you uh, in episode fifty, have you, you know, how, how is your work going? And, and are you excited for you know what could change with your work in Hong Kong? Okay. Well, since episode fifty, I don't think that my uh, work has changed a lot. I think I'm still very much interested in the same things. You know, for those that have listened, maritime uh, boundaries is one thing, and international courts and tribunals is another thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm very much looking forward to uh, to keep working in that direction when we go to Hong Kong. And teaching and doing research is going to to give, I hope, somewhat of a of a boost to uh, to my creativity as well in in that in that field. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about like you know moving to Hong Kong? Because I've done this move before uh, this way. And I don't know, it's a big move. Well, it is a big move. And of course, I have been thinking long and hard about it. We talked about it a lot. Uh, I think there's a bit of, you know, fear in a way, because you, you kind of step into the unknown. Not you, but I do step into a bit of the, of the unknown. But I've been to Hong Kong three times already. I've met the entirety of your family. They're such wonderful people that I, I know that'll be fine. I just know. I, I just feel that it's going to be fine. So now I think excitement is definitely higher than any, any, other, any, other, any other feeling that I might be having. Mm-hmm. And how is it going to be for you to go back to Hong Kong after 11 years? So um, as I like mentioned earlier, like I just sort of feel that being away has disconnected me like from my home and my family and my culture. And so I'm excited to just be back there. I also am going back with a lot of like qualifications that 
you know, that mean that I understand people just a little bit more. <laughs> and, you know, maybe there might be, you know, useful, um, well, there might be spaces out there that would be useful for me to do work in when I get back. Um, there are like two, two things or two, two things, I guess, that people always want to ask, which is like, am I, is it like politically safe to be in Hong Kong? And my answer to that is that because of what's going on there and because it, it concerns society and, and politics, as an anthropologist, I'm sort of uniquely placed to understand what's going on, um, especially the, the, the real lived experiences for people who live there. And so I'm very proud to go back and work there because I want to make sure that there is an anthropologist who will be able to, um, you know, do research on this topic. Um, and for me, it's, it's, you know, I would, I, I would not rather be anywhere else. I would want to be proud and working there. And when you first got news that you would, you would um, accept the job, you know, they really do need that his, history um, or that, you know, those socio-political elements to be taught in the universities, to be, to have research being done on it, um, to help investigate aspects of identity. And, and so, you know, I'm sort of like, I see it as a way of like moving with the times and like employing my skills. The second thing that people, many people ask is, um, you know, what, what does it mean for like your work? Because you always said that, you know, Michael, you said that you moved over here because there wasn't much biological anthropology or bioarchaeology in the region. And um, it's not true entirely that there are there are archaeologists and prehistorians who work in East and Southeast Asia. It's just sort of like um, they don't have as much research capacity. Like all the labs don't have funding for big isotope machines or um, you know ancient DNA analysis and the stuff that the, the equipment that you need for that. Um, I'm really interested in going back home so that I can see in what ways I'd be able to help that. So. I don't know what I'm doing. In, in general, like in, in both of these ways, like I'm excited to, um, you know, have, be, be working in my profession there and uh, collaborate with a lot of people over there. And um, do you have any news for the podcast listeners? So with the podcast, I don't plan on stopping, but I do need a break. And anybody who has been uh, paying attention to the show for quite a while will know that, you know, around episode 40, I stopped all of a sudden because life, other stuff in life was a little bit overwhelming and I took about a month off back then. Um, around episode 100, after my episode where I was interviewed um, for episode 100, it was the same thing, a bit overwhelming and then, you know, there was a bit of like a weird schedule. Um, but, you know, as you have seen, we have uh, stood strong. We have like continued to release episodes three times a week and here we are at at one at 150 on July 10th. What I'm going to do differently from around episode 40 and 100 is intentionally take a break this time because I think it's very healthy <laughs> for um, people with a very intense schedule uh, with podcasting or SciComm to take a break sometimes. Um, I just need to regroup. And I need to um, think about ways to improve the podcast in terms of the audio quality to in terms of um you know continuing to bring a diverse group of experts in onto the show and well to, to highlight important research that's been being done right now so 
that's what I'm going to do. And the next episode will come out on August 10th. If anybody listening right now wants to see you know, more content and they haven't already listened to some of our previous episodes, then you know, I would highly encourage everyone to, to go back into the catalog and check some of our episodes out because there are a lot of them. I hear episode 50 and 100 are really good. <laughs> Don't know why. I've just, just been told by people. Yeah. I mean, people should just go back and listen to everything again, even if they have heard all of them. Yeah, I'll just give your students something to dis- listen to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or you can just have it be playing in the background uh, on mute. That would be really good for my uh, numbers. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, the podcast will continue. Episode 151 is going to come out on August 10th. And uh, I can't wait for the next season of uh, 50 episodes to come out because I already have a lot of guests lined up to be on the show. And so I look forward to that. At this point, I would also love to say a big thank you to the patrons. Um, Their patronage means the world to me. It is honestly food on the table. It is allowing me to continue doing these episodes for everybody. And so to Aiden, Akimagi, Allison, Amanda, Ayushi, Kate, Dee, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jamie, Kara, Catherine, Katie, Kayla, Christina, Christy, Lena, Leslie, Liana, Melissa, Michelle, Nick, Sharon, and Tariq. Thank you so much for all of your support because I just couldn't do this podcast without, without your support. And when Michael says food on the table means my table too. So keep donating. <laughs> <laughs> and ask your friends to donate. If, if anybody does want to hop on board and you're not yet a patron yet, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod and find out all the benefits and options for doing so. If you can't be a patron right now for whatever reason, then I would also really appreciate it if you went on iTunes and left a review. If you went on social media to promote the podcast in any way um, that you feel comfortable on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit at Arcananth Pod, I really appreciate that. It helps spread the word about the podcast and it helps people interested in anthropology and archaeology find the podcast. And so I really appreciate it when people share the show. So Michael, I know that at the end of your episodes, you always ask the guest, in this case, you, Mm -hmm. to come up with a hashtag for the episode. So have you got a hashtag for us? Well, you know, we're recording this because a lot of big stuff is happening right now. And so why don't we just use the hashtag moving to HK? Sounds good. I mean, that's that's literally what we're doing. (laughs) It's unique. So M-O-V-I-N-G-T-O. HK. Capitalize the H and the K, people. Yes, it means Hong Kong. Um, And yeah, like I'm just so thankful. Um, You know, everybody, if you want to go to uh, arcananth.com, you'll find all of our previous episodes there. And uh, I I don't know how we got to this point. Um, I look back at it and, you know, it's, it's not even been two years. You know, it's not even, it's barely more than a year and 150 episodes are out. We've had so many people on the show and uh, I can't wait to interview more. Well, I know that the podcast will be in my life as well for quite some time. So I, I also can't wait to see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. He's creative. He's going to come up with something, people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you so much for listening, everyone. We will see you for episode 151 on August 10th. Thanks so much again for listening and for supporting the show. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.